Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network Positive, Positively different radio in the morning And you are with Lyle and... Renee! Renee! How are you this morning, Renee? I'm very good You're it's, very good It's Friday, Lyle Yes, it is Friday <laughs> indeed And why is that good? Because it's Sabbath tomorrow It is Sabbath tomorrow What are you doing for Sabbath tomorrow? I'm actually preaching at um, my church. Okay. But I'll also be just with family and I'll be resting and I'll All right, so tell us about um, where your church is and what you'll be preaching on. Yeah, so um, my church is in Sydney, Fox Valley Church, which is in Warunga, Uh Actually, in the where the, the what is it? The hospital is just beside the hospital. That's it. Uh, yeah. Fox Valley Community Centre Church, right there beside the hospital. So you know where the if everyone knows where the sand is, big you know famous private hospital there in Sydney. So just head there, yeah. you will find the signs and go to Renee's church. Yeah. What are, what are you speaking on? I'm speaking on Jesus, who is the eternal temple. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a We've we've spoken about the temple a little bit this week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh so you're going to you're going to go there and talk about Jesus as the eternal temple. Yes. Yes. There you go. If, <laughs> now if I had known this, so here's how it works on Faith FM. You'll have to remember this for next time when you're preaching, you get to write a quiz. Oh. For your sermon. So if someone can answer the quiz really fast, maybe then uh <laughs> we can get a quiz from Renee's presentation, maybe she can start working on that. Who knows? But we'll have to answer this quiz that is coming up soon really, really fast because, well, we don't have time to put another one together. But yesterday afternoon, I spent time splitting firewood, which is just one of my favourite things to do. Nice. I I don't know why. I've always split firewood and... It's just Very good, satisfying. satisfying exercise. Yes. Great aerobic exercise. I think that um, gyms should always have um, some blockbusters and a chopping block out the back with a pile of firewood. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, very good. What have we got for positively different news this morning? Okay, so some interesting news from Japan. A COVID-19 patient has received, in Japan, has received the first world, the world's first lung transplant from living donors. So she, the the patient has received lung transplant transplant lung tissue from her son and her husband. The patient underwent a 11-hour operation at Kyoto University Hospital. 11 hours. That's pretty phenomenal. You get tissue from your husband and from your son. And your son. That's... And and we can put that inside another human being and it continues to live. It's just... (laughs) You know, humans are amazing and... I just praise God for the brain that we have been created with, that we're able to figure this kind of stuff out and to do that kind of thing. And I praise God for the body that God gave us yeah. that can actually handle something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something so crazy like that. That is off the charts. <laughs> um, the woman who underwent the operation, she got, uh, she contracted COVID-19 late last year. And so she spent months on a life support machine acting as artificial lung because hers had no longer become functional. However, it has been expected after this surgery that she's just had that she'll recover um, from last week's operation within months. So it'll be a slow process, but she she has her life. And it shows the kind of love that her family has for her. This must be a very, very special woman, you know, when uh, both the son and the father get together and, you know, and, and you know. Risk their lives. Risk their lives. Mm-hmm. I would think, 
long and hard about, you know, donating a lung yeah. uh, to somebody else. Um, I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't think long and hard about donating it to producer Cheryl because she's my wife. But you know, you sort of it, it'd be it'd be daunting. Yeah, it would yeah. be very daunting to do yeah. so. High risk. So, special they, person. Both of them donated their lung tissue. So that's and it's the first time a living donor has has done this donated. for a, done yes. this for a uh, for a COVID patient. Yes. Yes. Indeed. All right. Um, also, going ahead, uh, just some more news in, in the world of the health world. Indigenous health workers um, have been uh, entering the field to continue the work done there by their families. So, young Indigenous healthcare workers in Queensland have been following in the footsteps of their parents, their grandparents, in hopes that more of their generation will do the same. Um, an Indigenous doctor from Mount Isa says that the job in the healthcare system, it's not a nine to five commitment. Um, uh, Caleb, he is a Ganga Lida Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man. He grew up in Mount Isa. Um, he listened to his grandmother and mother's and sister's stories of working in the healthcare and outback city. He says that seeing his nan work, study hard, she worked on becoming an RN, uh, and hearing her, uh, relay all her studies back to him, it really got him interested and inspired to get into, into health and to work um, not only in the health system, but bring that into his community and build that trust in that community there. Um, he's just received his ambulance technician epaulet as part of his Indigenous Paramedics Cadetship Program. And he's working to achieve his Bachelor of Paramedic Science. Um, he eventually wants to be an advanced care paramedic. And he says that having Indigenous people employed in the healthcare system could act as a draw card for other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to become more engaged with the healthcare, healthcare system. He says that he can relate to them on a cultural level and they can relate to him. Mm. Um, I think that's important in life. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, in more news, this one's pretty interesting as well. Um, falcon, falconry. Falconry? Falconry. Falconry, that's the yes. word we go. It's an oh, ancient is, sport. It is so amazing. <laughs> it just does my head in. It's like, wow, I would love to... I would love to have a pet falcon. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's super cool seeing these people like they'll whistle and the bird will come land on their hand. And I'm like, man, that is, it you is, are cool. It is so cool. It <laughs> is so cool. Anyway, tell us about it. So a man, Rodney Stotts, he said that falconry basically saved his life. He was dealing drugs in the southwest of Washington, D.C. during the crack epidemic. And he said that... He, he he did not think he would be where he is. It, he didn't know that, you know, something like falconry would have sort of save his life. Um, basically, the sport, he basically helps, um, uh, he now helps at-risk youth in his community and he, he gets them involved in falconry, teaching them how to... How so this is kind of some uh, a sport that is coming back then. In this, yes, yes. Because, I mean, this was a sport that almost died out because it's so hard. It so, is. It's so much involved in training the bird and the bird learning to communicate with the human yeah. and then them having this mutual relationship together where they they essentially play the game together. Yeah, yeah. 
That's it. Wow. So okay. So really good. To- so he's doing this with young people, getting young people involved. Young people. Another generation coming through. Exactly. So he has a program called Rodney's Raptors, which helps kids in various institutions and schools who take his own his program, and it opens their minds to a possibility of what life can offer. Um, he holds a master falconry license, um, and so what he does, he he's also he's he also uh, collects not collects, but he um. He gathers like birds, falcon, birds, um, falcons, hawks, eagles, owls who um, aren't able to hunt anymore. Right. And so he's he, got a license to be able to to keep them and to, to keep them, train them, care for them, yep. um, provide care, provide care because a lot of them actually are, are endangered in um, you know outside real life. So um, yeah, so he's working. Um, he seeing how birds are in like I guess how how just taking care of them them himself um and seeing how these birds who aren't able to hunt anymore but he's still able to use them to um reach the young youth in his community and just help them realize that you know there is still hope and they still have the ability to change direction in their life and you know live a better life to do better in life so there's there is hope there is hope for you to turn around turn your life around you're listening to the breakfast show podcast on faith fm Positively different. Okay, so we had a very interesting story the other day. Oh, by the way, um, yeah, that's, we've got that uh, numbers out there. Okay, we had a very interesting story the other day about traumatic brain injuries, which created an interesting off-air discussion between Lawson and myself because Lawson used to be an elite athlete and as such uh, suffered quite a number of concussions and never realised, I never realised just how big of an issue this actually is. And because it's an invisible injury, it's... One of those things that we really don't even truly understand it today, but there's a big report uh, in the news today in relationship to women in sports uh, because women are at far greater risk of traumatic brain injuries and long-term effects from concussion than what men are. Um, so they're at, at a greater risk. They have uh, the, the injury has a greater effect and is more severe on women than is on men. And so, for instance, you've got uh, a girl here, Sarah McCarthy. She is used as an, uh, one example that um, has been interviewed, uh, who was a uh, speed skating. She suffered a second concussion in one week where she didn't actually go out cold. She was conscious. As far as she could tell, she was conscious the whole time. She was just sort of, you know, she had a bell rung and she was knocked pretty dizzy and um, was, you know, sort of, Sitting down for a while, but that resulted in. So this is this is not even being knocked out cold. Five months of being incapacitated by dizziness, nausea, ringing is sleeplessness um, and sleepiness. You know during the day, uh, emotional swings, etc. Five years later, she still still struggles for a good night's sleep. Um, she still struggles remembering people's names. Uh, sometimes she'll struggle putting a sentence structure together, still deals with fatigue, uh, is sensitive to light, sensitive to stress, sensitive to sound, and so her brain hasn't fully recovered from that. And so this is something that, you know, we obviously need to do a lot more research on and we need to look at a lot more closely at in sports. So getting out and playing some sport and having some exercise is such a great thing and so you know beneficial all round it's so important that you know we get uh, we get that exercise and of course it creates 
uh, a social atmosphere, some great community, all those kind of things. There are a lot of positive things, but when we're dealing with contact sports in particular, because some sports are actually designed to be quite violent when you stop and think about it, yeah, we need to be aware of this kind of injury and what it does to our elite sportsmen and how quickly their careers can be cut short and their lives changed forever. And uh, we need to ask ourselves the question, you know, as a society, do we actually support this? Mm. And if we are supporting this, you know, what are we actually doing about it? And we need to be doing something about traumatic uh, brain injuries. So research on the difference between the way that men and women are affected with traumatic brain injuries, and, and of course, you know, it goes both ways, um, is still in the early stages. But there's a growing amount of evidence within women's contact sports that this is a major problem. And what they're looking at is that it's possibly because women's brains have a faster metabolism and a greater flow of oxygen than what men's brains do. And basi- basically, the the cells in a woman's brain are hungrier. And so when you get a... Yeah, you can kind of take that <laughs> a few different ways, can't you? <laughs> we, we could have an interesting discussion about this one. Um, but the cells are hungrier. There's, there's, there's more going on there. Uh, but what, that ha- what happens is when you have a concussion, you have, you know, it blocks... It cuts off the oxygen supply, it cuts off the blood supply uh, to portions of the brain and so therefore has a greater effect. The other thing that they're looking at is that women have less muscle mass in the neck, which means that they're more susceptible to these kinds of injuries. They're looking at the fact that women have three times greater risk of migraine headaches than what men do and that post-concussion migraines are significantly worse for women than what they are for men. Mm. And so this is something that we need to look at. Um, they're also looking at things like early onset uh, onset of um, dementia and so forth. So it raises a whole bunch of questions, very, very valid questions in relationship to women's sport, in relationship to biological men competing in women's sport, in relationship to how we look after our athletes and whether we are sacrificing people's you know, quality of life, length of life, etc., cetera, uh, for our own personal in- entertainment? Is this just a milder form of, you know, gladiatorial sports, mm. you know, where we are seeing people injured? You know, do we want to sit down and watch sports where we're seeing people receive permanent injuries? These are questions that we need to be looking at and asking as a society. Uh, Pope Francis has just hosted an online symposium uh, made up of representatives from the world's religions. So this is Pope Francis calling the world's religions together to talk talk about strategies for preventing and healing child sexual abuse, which I think is a fantastic thing. We need to be getting together. Everybody needs to be getting together. There are a couple of uh, alarm bells that go off in my mind immediately. I guess, and I think it's a little bit uh, ironic. Well, I guess the first alarm bell that goes off in my mind is, you know, there is this thing in the Bible that talks about all of the world's religions coming together at the end of time. Yeah. And sort of, you see this and it's like, this is good. I support this and I would promote this. Mm. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, okay, I also recognize what the Bible says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I would be a part of this. I would, I would go in there and have my bit to say. 
But I do find it a little bit ironic that, uh, you know, if you are the worst, if you have the worst record of uh, child institutional child sex abuse anywhere in the world, how do you actually deal with that bad press? Well, you know, you get out in front uh, by positioning yourself as the one who's doing the most to bring it to an end, I guess. Um, and at the same time, it also feels somewhat empty to me. You know, position yourself as the world's leader in dealing with institutional child sex abuse while you are not doing anything about practices that create an environment for child sex abuse, such as were highlighted highlighted by the two main factors that were highlighted by the Royal Commission here in Australia being the celibacy of the priesthood and the confessional. You know, I've said this before, but you think about it, the confessional is an environment in which a Roman Catholic priest has daily access to children, you know, there's daily access to children by men in the confessional, uh, where they are in a one-on-one, 100% private setting, um, and there, there's a requirement to discuss, you know, the child's sexual practices um, and details about the child's home life. Um, there's an opportunity to discover a child's vulnerability um, to abuse. And, you know, you, the list just goes on and on and on. This is a terrible institution that the church can do something about so easily. Um, it, it enables um, access to details of the child's life that they would not share with their parents. Uh, the identity of vulnerable children, it's an intimate environment, it's an intimate conversation. Uh, the information gained from children can be easily used for blackmail. Uh, a, a priesthood that practices, you know, this is it's a basically a medieval and unnatural, you know, doctrine of celibacy, and you combine it with the confessional where they can have these kind of conversations. You and I can't have a one-on-one conversation behind closed doors with children. Mm. That's against our church policy. We get yeah. sacked for that kind of thing. Yeah. And here it's actually a part of, as a requirement. And so until the Catholic Church does something about this, I find a lot of what they're doing is a little bit hollow, even though I totally support them, you know, getting out there in front and doing something. Yeah. Because we need to be doing something. Anyway, rant over. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Joining us on the phone this morning for a monthly update is Luke Ferrugia from Oz Table Talk. And Luke, I think you're probably not by yourself this morning. No, I am not. I am on dad duty. So my boys are around this morning. I've got a four year old and an 18 month old. So. Okay, so dad, daddy duty this morning. Uh, good to hear. Um, we're also keen to hear about what you, your group of young guys has been talking about. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at the demographics of Christianity that. As Christianity as a religion is unique in that we have a 40-60 split. Only 40% of Christians are men, whereas 60% of Christians are women. A split that does not exist in other religions, so it's not that, you know, women are more spiritual than men. Uh, but it is an interesting thing, and it is also very interesting to hear from young guys who love Jesus and want to explore what the Bible has to say. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. I really I really appreciate you pointing that out. Like it's it's very interesting how um how much our, our the generation that we come from 
changes how we how we process the Bible, how we process scripture. The message is the same, but how we package that and how we understand it and how it impacts our life does change from generation to generation. And so having those conversations is really important. And we like, we like to have the conversations that, uh, you know, you wish you could have at church, those, those deep conversations. And we often, I mean, most of the time it is us and we are dealing with younger people, but we're noticing now that, um, you know, the generation that's even under us is, uh, you know, they process things differently as well. And so we're trying to give them a voice. And so we're, we're trying to be more inclusive and getting more voices to the table. And it's been a great experience. So. No, that's absolutely fantastic. We appreciate what you've been doing. What have you guys been talking about this last month? So there's been a, been a few different topics this month. What, one of my favorites was uh, we dealt with the question, is bad theology really that dangerous? You know, like in our in our culture today, like there's sort of that that feeling, like, well, you know, as long as as long as you you've got a good heart, like your motives are okay, you know, if, if your theology's a bit wrong and you, you believe it's something that's not right, you know, in the greatest scheme of things, it'll all pan out okay. And so we sort of dealt with that question of is bad theology really all that dangerous? Okay, so so what would have, did you come up with some examples of where bad theology could bring you unstuck in this yeah. scenario? Mm. Yeah, so like one of the most obvious options, we, we do a bit of a historical sweep. One of the most obvious things is, is if you look at the Dark Ages, right? As you were going through, um, you know, the Dark Ages of the church where there was the, the persecution that was going on of different um, Christian groups that um, didn't agree with the the uh, prevailing view of the Catholic Church and you know, with the Inquisition and all of those things that, that took place, all of those terrible um, crimes against humanity, if you look at it, they were all really a result of bad theology. That if you believe the wrong thing, it leads you to act in a way that does not produce godly kind of activity and you start end up persecuting people. This is so true because if you look at practices like, for instance, burning at the stake where you um, tie a criminal to a uh, basically a large fence post, pile wood around them and set them on fire, that was a practice that actually came from theology. This was not really? something I didn't you, know that. you do not find this practice in any other culture other than Christian cultures. And the idea behind it was, well, you're going to eternal hellfire and you're going to burn for eternity in hellfire. And mm. the, then therefore an appropriate, uh, way to begin that journey into eternal hellfire is through fire. I did not know that. That, that is horrible. <laughs> it's bad theology right there, and it's where bad theology can end up. Maybe an extreme example, yep. but uh, one that yeah. certainly points out that bad theology can end up with um, bad yeah. outcomes. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is one of the other things that we were looking at, like taking it more into today's culture. Uh, you know, you were just uh, pointing out then the, the idea of an eternal you know, burning hellfire that the person would be going to. That's another example that I, I believe of where theology can lead us. Because if you look at those kind of, um, uh, what, what's the word? those kind of denominations or, or Christian groups that are very harsh in how they understand God to be, they think of God as being this very, uh, uh, exacting and punitive God that, that goes and punishes people for the pure enjoyment of it. If they believe in that kind of a God, they tend to start to emulate that kind of God, right? They tend to treat people like they think God treats them. And so I think that's something that we also need to be aware of, and that is that if we have a bad picture of God, that's eventually going to reflect in us because we are going to start acting like that picture of God. Here's another bad theology one that just sort of comes to my mind, and I guess if we sat here and talked about it, we could have our own Oz table talk right here on Faith FM, but prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, and where do you, where would you say that leads? Like, where does that ideology lead to people? It leads to celebrity pastors who are fabulously wealthy. It leads to a massive gap between the uh, the rich and the poor. It mead leads to the scamming of poor people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Look, sounds like sounds like the young fella is uh, very keen to be a part of the infor- the uh, the conversation. He can't wait for him to uh, grow up a little bit and uh, actually join us on here. I think he's taking after his dad for sure. Yeah, he certainly likes chatting a lot. So, so sorry about that, everybody. No, but, that's uh, okay. We love him. He's, he's uh, just chatting up a storm. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. Okay, so what else? What else did you guys get a chance to talk about? Okay, so um, one we dealt with is a question from our audience. They were asking this question of, uh, you know, how do we uh, how do we support a friend that's experiencing pain if we don't understand that pain? You know, if someone, as an example, if they've lost a loved one or lost a spouse and you've never experienced that, how can you actually support them in a way that's meaningful with, without having gone through it yourself? And so we, we were looking... Sorry. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, I just comment that... Um, you know, the the example that you have raised there is an example that I've lived. So I lost, you know, my mother when I was young, and I don't find it any easier to support somebody who's going through grief because of that experience, because having been through that experience myself, you know, grief is one of those things that is just hard. There is just no way of, easy way of dealing with it. And it's, I, I, I would just comment, just support them. Doesn't matter whether yeah. you've been there or not. It's not going to make a difference. That's that's my comment. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What did you guys yeah. come up with? Because I'm sure that there was some tragedy. You know, amongst the four or five guys that get together, surely there was some tragedy there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like as an example, um, Dave, his when he was 14, his father committed suicide. You know, and so he was talking about uh, his experience with that and how others supported him and how you know gave some examples of what really was beneficial and what actually really was quite the opposite. You know, it was actually quite damaging. And, uh, you know, amongst the, the rest of us at the table, as you say, you know, we, we had quite a number of stories of times that we'd been through things in our, in our life. And some of the, the key, the key things that seem to come up is that just like you said, just support them. You don't have to actually have the experience in order to know that because even if you've had exactly the same thing happen to you, like let's say, you know, if you've lost your mother, even if someone else lost their mother, their relationship with their mother could still be very different to the one that you had with your mother. Mm. And so the, the the pain is going to be different. So even if you've experienced technically the same thing, your experience with that is still going to be different. So we shouldn't hang around and wait for, oh, well, I can't help that person because their experience is not my experience. And so we need to think about it in a more practical way. You know, ask yourself, what, what can I, how can I support them? You know, are they... Um, keeping themselves looked after, you know, are, are they, you know, eating well and, you know, just practical things, you know, if they're, if they are struggling in some area of life that you know of as a result of what they're going through, then help them with that. Drop a meal off if, if that's just, you know, one thing that they don't have to think about that day. Just be, you know, uh, practical support to them. But aside from that, just sit with them and, and listen, you know, I, I went through a, a pretty, um, uh, terrible experience a couple of years ago um, with uh, you know my wife Sarah she, she almost died in hospital and that through that time I, I had friends that came and they didn't do anything but they just sat they listened to me they just sat with me in the process and that was far more valuable than anybody trying to give me any answers and so well, I, I think just you know being with people and looking for their practical needs and obviously praying for them and being with them are the very best things that you can do. 
Yeah, absolutely. Really, really appreciate what you guys have uh, have shared right there. That is what it's all about, and uh, fantastic to have that conversation. Very difficult one, uh, I'm sure, for your friend who lost his father. And um, yeah, just um, yeah. And as you say, you, you just his circumstances have their similarities with mine, but are so vastly different. You can't relate. You can't relate to another person. You can just be there for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting also that he talked about, well, it's interesting that he talked about some things that were helpful and some things that weren't. And one of the things mm. that I learned is not to be offended by those things that were unhelpful mm. because they came from people with a good heart who were trying to be helpful. Yeah. And appreciating and like, okay, that wasn't helpful, but I love the fact that you care. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the case of hearing, hearing the motive, not necessarily hearing the, uh, what they actually said. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, All right. Cool. What else? What else was talking about? Okay. So the one that actually uh, was the most recent one, the one that came out this week was, uh, the title of the episode was Unfriended. And, uh, you know, we live in this society where, uh, you know, social media plays a big role in like, you know, you friend people and unfriend people. But we were talking about that, like in the real world. Can one Christian, like if we profess to be Christians, is it possible to unfriend someone? And if so, why would you do that and how would you go about that? This was actually an audience question because someone, someone was asking about, like, how do you navigate those kind of relationships when you are a Christian and the other person's a Christian too, but that person isn't healthy to, for you to be around or, you know, for whatever the reason, um, how, do, how should Christians view that friendship with each other? Okay, so that's very um, interesting because the whole thing, bunch of things that go through my mind at that particular point, you know, what do we do with really toxic yeah. people? Um, yeah. Is, you know, how do we protect our safety? And at the same time, how do we, how do we extend love and acceptance to every person and see every person as being a soul for the kingdom? Yeah, exactly. Wow. I think one of the key, one of the key ideas that I think sort of bubbled to the surface, we were looking at, at Jesus' model of how he managed friendships, right? And he managed friendships in much the same way that, that, you know, we do today. And that is, you know, we have, we have tiered friendships. It was like one of the terms I used in the episode. We have tiered friendships. So, you know, you might have, you know, 150 people that you would call a friend. But of that group, you know, you probably, if you said, who were your closest friends? Most people would probably struggle to name more than five or six people who are the, like, in your inner circle of friends. So, you know, I think we, it's, we have to be smart about who we allow into that innermost circle, the ones that have the most influence on our lives and who we, we take the most uh, advice or, or modeling from because, Ultimately, by beholding, we become changed. And if we are constantly hanging out with a certain sort of person that, like you mentioned, like perhaps a toxic kind of person, if we're hanging out with those kind of people, mostly, and they're the, they're the core of our friendship unit, they're going to be hurting us. And, and more than that, we're going to be becoming like them. So we need to give careful attention to who we spend our time with. And so it's actually quite, I believe anyway, I believe quite biblical, biblically sound to uh, cherry pick, to be very selective about who we allow into that circle of friends. Outside of that, those, as you say, those people need Christ just as much as we do. They, they need to be loved. They need to experience acceptance in, in that sort of a context. But I think that they can be, you know, tier two or tier three in our experience. You know, they're not the people that we listen to and, and, and we, we are uh, closest to, but they are some people we can love and serve when we see them. Obviously, there are going to be times where if somebody is a, an abusive person and, you, and there is danger involved, then no, I don't believe that 
that uh, Jesus expects us to put ourselves in harm's way, you know, I don't think that is what he intended. But at the same time, you know, that as you say, people need to need to be loved. Sometimes it may not be you who needs to love that person, but ultimately we should seek to express that love to everybody, even if they're not at the at the top of our, our contact list. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, yeah, a, a challenging one. Really, would be very interested to hear everything that you guys had to share in that space by listening to the full episode on Oz Table Talk. How do we get to listen to Oz Table Talk? So you can get there on oztabletalk.com.au. We are actually uh, in the process of updating our website. So uh, if it's offline, it'll be up very, very shortly. So if you miss it this morning, it'll be up tomorrow. So. Fantastic. Luke Ferrugia from Oz Table Talk. Thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.